Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Anthony Tradico has been a strength and conditioning coach for over 20 years, and just in time for the new year, he brings us Force 46 Strength and Conditioning, the John Stuckey Perspective, Transformative Knowledge for Fitness and Physical Education Design. All right, Anthony, first tell us who John Stuckey is. It was all big eight at Kansas State, went on to play two years in the CFL for the British Columbia Lions. He then decided he wanted to uh, promote strength training. And at that time, you know, schools weren't, they didn't know anything about training. But uh, Coach Stuckey was one that trained himself in a barn and uh, found out how much improved he was. So he was, like I said, a true pioneer. So then his uh, story career took off. He went back to Kansas State. Um, he got a master's degree in physical education. He then went to Wichita State. And he was at that time doing both on-the-field coaching and the strength coach. So they didn't really have a paid strength coach position back in those days. And then after that, he went to the University of Arkansas the first time. So he was there and they went to all major bowls those four years. He, he helped get the team to the Orange Bowl, Fiesta, and I think the Sugar Bowl. And that would have been when Lou Holtz, I think, was there. Then he took a job at North Carolina State for four years and became a full-time strength coach. So instead of coaching like defensive line linebackers and being a strength coach, he built the program so big he was that's all he did. He didn't coach on the field, which then led him to go to Oklahoma State four years later. So this would have been in the 80s, like 1984 to 1988. Uh, and that's, that's when Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas were there. And then he came back to Arkansas and he had two, uh, led him to two Southwest Conference titles through 89. And that's when I showed up and he was uh, my strength coach until he moved to Tennessee. And when he went to Tennessee, he guided them to the national title in 98. And the book was a tribute to him. Um, he was a pioneer in, in training. So really back in 1970, there were really only two people uh, known to do strength training with athletes, and Coach Stuckey was one of them. So he's earned every achievement there is, and that knowledge is what really transformed my knowledge and ability. So that's why that was a big part of the book. You know, a lot of the new stuff has been incorrect. If you take a look at the idea of specialization, um, sport-specific training in particular um, is misrepresented and misunderstood by many. And Coach was doing it, you know, in 1970. So in a lot of ways, things that I've seen over the years 
uh, especially now, uh, is not is way behind where Coach was, but it, it's coming out as a, as if it's new knowledge, and I think that's to the detriment of what training really is. What's your big beef with fitness today? Well, fitness has has been a train wreck as far as studies you know, my whole lifetime, by the time I got, I already knew just by training under coach Stuckey versus the cardiovascular doctrine and all the nonsense that you see. I mean, lifting always was put on the back burner because of the myths that, oh, well, you're going to get too big or, you know, squatting is not good for your knees, which all those myths that were always said were never true to begin with. Um, So as I learned from Coach Stuckey and then studied it with, you know, master's degree in exercise and sports studies and my degree in kinesiology, you begin to see how much poor knowledge is actually out there. So you even still hear the cardio doctrine today. Like if you want to lose weight, um, you know, just do cardio running or be on a treadmill. Of course, those of us that study this know that you need to build muscle if you want to lose weight. And that's why our country struggled with weight loss is because they try and do the minimal just walk, just get on a treadmill when you're not putting any muscle on, you're not doing any dynamic flexibility. So they go into that yo-yo diet. And the only way to truly lose weight and then keep it off is to put muscle on. And you do that through appropriate strength training. And of course, my book goes into even greater detail to all my clients. We don't do any specific cardio. You can do cardio by training properly with free weights. Um, And I also trained a kid who's in my book who went to West Point and he echoes his same experience. Um, And he earned commander of the Corps at West Point. And he's in my program now virtually. And uh, he can run 40 miles without even thinking right now. And all he does is lift. So what what sets your program apart from, you know, there's so many fitness programs right. out there. I feel bad for people who write fitness right. books because you really got to have something special. And that's, that's why I wrote this. Uh, we don't, you don't have to leave an eight foot by eight foot platform if you are truly training. Um, and that was, you know, the gist of what I'm saying. There's so much nonsense out there that people, they, they are confused. They struggle with it. Most people aren't well-schooled in understanding free weight lifting anyway. So often the coaching is not good. And so people get frustrated. But strength training has just in these last few years taken precedence, which is unusual. But with that, you get a whole new wave of basically what I say in the book is either snake oil or Kool-Aid drinkers that lay claims to you know, doing X, Y, and Z in the weight room. And, and a lot of times it's complete misinformation that you see. And I'm trained to know what's good and what's not where most people are not. What's the big mistake that we all make? The big mistake is the cardio craze. And, and part of it is to get into free weights, you have to have somebody who's really qualified to teach. So in my theory, both as state director of the NSCA, we started seeing this personal trainer concept come out. And 
um, if you're a true strength coach, which the strength coaches were the were the first of this, personal training came out later. And it's more, I think, a money driven. So I refuse to use the term personal trainer. I am a strength and conditioning coach. So that's what my people know. I'm their strength coach, not a personal trainer, because you have to do, you know, all these total body lifts. And I also emphasize movement. If if our people can't move, it's irrelevant whether they're an athlete or not. People have to be able to move later in life, and you have to have the strength to move your body weight, which means you need to be stronger than your body weight. And I think that's where people miss the boat, and they also have those beliefs like, well, I don't want to get bulky. You you genetically are what you are. Like, if you could see me, you would know. Um, you know, my forearms are not huge, but they're extremely strong. Like I can literally wrap my thumb and middle finger around my wrist, but I can do two finger pull-ups. You know, I bench press 385 pounds at 175 pounds, you know, so it's not about size. That's bodybuilding. And people really don't know the difference between a bodybuilder, a power lifter that is taking drugs because that's what they do to get to a thousand pound deadlift. They'll come out and tell you, you know, so there's all these different myths where real strength and conditioning was about developing athletes. And what I figured out, this is how everybody should train. So that is what separates me versus the other echo chambers you know so i have to give you an example i have a 72 year old lady that lifts with me at 5 30 in the morning four days a week and she's lost 18 pounds and she doesn't do anything else so it's pretty impressive the the, the group of people i have and it's always it's proven true because i've done it for 30 years and now I have a neat client base from basically 10 years old to 72 that they all see, you know, basically what I said, you need to lift free weights. And then again, it has to be sequenced and done properly, which the book covers those things. But I don't, I didn't come out and spell out how I design, uh, you know, a weekly program that could be a second edition, but I think the points made were uh, showing all the all the misinformation that's out there. I think that will help people learn better. If you just give an example, see what's being said, and then show why that's nonsense. I, I think an important thing, too, is form. Yeah. I wrote that in my book. I do a nine-week general prep that pre- you have to prepare the body to train even while you're training. So I use a nine week concept that I developed over the years just from experience. And, you know, a lot of people, they just want to be thrown in or they're told to be thrown in and just start banging weight and they're always sore. Um, That's going to set you back. I mean, in the long run of your training, it's going to set you way back. So you're spot on. Uh, And I see that. And most of the people coming out with these certifications are way deficient versus what the real strength coaches knew. And that's part of the problem, you know. Well, also, you can get a certification. Nobody has to see you. You just pass a test. So 
so nobody can see if you even have good form yep. and if you don't have good form, how are you going to exactly. teach somebody else? Exactly. So it? that's all part of this, yeah. the train wreck that is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Clearly you have clients, yeah. right? They know you wrote right. a book. All my people here uh, within know, so word of mouth spread that way. And of course, all my kids that I've taught over 25 years are sending it out through Facebook and doing all that stuff. And then I have uh, the newspapers uh, doing an article here. Uh, the YMCA wants me to present. I have two presentations coming up in spring, one in um Altoona, Pennsylvania, and they're bringing in high school. So basically you do a lot of word of mouth and then do uh, the clinics and uh, stuff with you guys. So I have media attached to my publisher that will be putting this out. So that's kind of the route we're going. I appreciate your book and I'm glad we got the chance to talk. Sure. Good luck, man. All right. Well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. In New Mexico, they call it Santa Fe. In Tennessee, they call it Santa Fe. And that's where we find Johnny Elmler, a man who might make you believe in miracles with his book entitled, Here I Am, A Story of True Love and Faith. Now, you say you didn't start writing until you had this accident. Going down a two-lane highway and had my cruise control setting on 57 miles an hour. And my heart just stopped. It, I got a sharp pain in my chest, and my heart stopped. And I went across the lane where the other traffic was. Luckily, I didn't hit anybody else, but I hit a tree almost as big as the truck. Oh, my gosh. And so it told the truck all the windows were busted. My airbags was busted and laid all over the dash. And uh, my both seat belts were broke. Even my waist one and my chest one was broke, and evidently my face hit the steering wheel because I heard a girl's voice, I thought, because, you know, when you're in the days, you don't really know. But actually hitting the tree, my doctor told me later, it's probably what started my heart back. Uh. And so I heard a lady, you know, say something. I looked around, but there was a man, looked like he was from his 50s, I mean, from the 50 era, standing in my door, and he never said one word to me. He started wiping the blood off of my face and out of my eyes and on my hands, you know. And so then I heard a siren of an ambulance, just or a police call, whatever, and boy, that ambulance backed right up to the door. So I turned to look to see what they were doing, and the man was gone. He just left. I don't know where he went. Oh. The ambulance drivers rushed out, and they were easing me onto a white sheet. And I said, man, I don't want to get blood all over your sheet. And he said, uh, sir, I'm sorry there's blood in your truck on your steering wheel and stuff. But he said, we don't see any blood on you at all. So they got me out, and then a state trooper walked up to the door, and he said, what's the hospital are you taking him to? And they said, sir... We can't find anything wrong with him. And, of course, they didn't check my heart. They didn't know that because I didn't know, you know. And then uh, he said, well, he's lucky. And he said, well, if he's okay, can he come down to the car talk to me about the accident? So I walked down his car just like normal. After that, I was at uh, work about a week later, and I felt that same little feeling, and I started turning white as a sheet again. And... 
then they rushed me to a little clinic, and as soon as they put me on a heart monitor, they throwed that old big blanket next to me. I said, oh, Lord, damn, I'll be executed. But they called an ambulance and rushed me to Centennial Hospital immediately. And so they checked me out and put a thing in my chest, and it keeps my heart beating on time. And then about two nights after I come home, this story started coming in my head. So I didn't know exactly where it was coming from, but I got up. Is it 2 o'clock in the morning? And it's just pushing me. Write it down, write it down. So I went downstairs and I started writing. So my wife come down. She said, what are you doing up at 2 o'clock in the morning? I said, I'm writing. She said, what are you writing? I said, honey, I don't know a book, I guess. She said, you can't write a book. You've never really read books. And I said, I've read a few. So within about 10 nights, that book was wrote. And the only thing I could figure out that the spirit of the Lord born this book wrote. I mean, this is nothing short of a miracle. I know it. That's what I'm, I don't understand it. I hope I don't cry. But it's why, why he would choose me, I don't know. I'm the least on the totem pole. I'm a believer, very much a believer, but I'm low on the totem pole. He could have got some well-known minister to do it, and the book would have been out there and been spread wide, you know. But he chose me, I guess. But you know the way I look at it? I look at it like this. Even though I'm low on the totem pole, if one person, if that book changes one person's life and gets everybody to love their neighbors, ourselves, and love each other's way, he loves us, then my old wretched soul has done its part on this earth. So what is your book about? The book is about, it happens here in, in the area of Williamson County and Leapers Fork or Hillsboro, there was a school and uh, a black boy and a black girl are in love with each other, but they really don't know that. They like each other a whole lot because they, they've met and so they're on the playground on the football field sitting by themselves in the bleachers. So me, I call myself uh, Johnny Reed in the book and then the bluegrass singer Billy Droves and Bruce, a country singer, that we're all real good friends. They're in the book, and we go out to throw a little football on the field, and we uh, see them sitting over and cut up with them, being lovers. You know how kids can act. But we're kids at this time, and then we all got to playing a little football. We asked them to throw a little football with us, and her dad was a football coach in Nashville. So she said, yeah, Joey, go out and throw a little football with him. I like football. Said you'd probably be good at it. So that's where it started. And it's a book about these kids coming together and being friends forever. But then through life, you know how life goes, there's a lot of ups and downs in their friendship and, and things that go on in this book that is almost unbelievable the way when the devil tears something down, God could put it back together very miraculously, you know. And as we grow up, every Sunday we make friends. I got a girlfriend, and Billy and Bruce got girlfriends, and, and of course, Michelle and Joey, the black girl and the black boy, 
they got to, you know, being lovers too. But her dad, since he was rich, he didn't want uh, his daughter going with a, a poor black kid because Joey wasn't rich. He was a worker. He worked at a shoe shine at a barbershop as a shoe shine boy. Her daddy was a football coach in Nashville, and he would come down and get his shoe shine and get a haircut. So finally, they slip off and get married, Joe and Michelle does. And so Joey had a job as a bricklayer, and uh, he was making pretty good money. So his, uh, he was living with his grandma and grandpa after his dad mom had to go to prison for a little gang fight. And see, Joey was in the car as a child, and so they took a kid, took Joey away from his mom and dad and put him with his grandma and grandpa. So after they died, Joey owned the house. His wife wanted a house in, in uh, Nashville, so he sold his grandma's house and bought him a house in Nashville. So times got hard, work got slow, and he missed a few payments, so the bank took their house. And Michelle called her dad crying about it. And so he come and got her. And when he came, he told her, he said, I told you you shouldn't have married him. And so she still loved Joey, but her daddy made her sign a divorce papers that she didn't want to sign. So the lawyer met Joey at the house. He said, she don't want to see you again. So he went in, signed the papers, and just went walking off. And so Joey went into Franklin and became a um, a street person, but a very good street person. He didn't say by his real name. He called himself Jolly on the streets. So Bruce and uh, Billy played at his club there, and he was walking down the street, and he saw their names on the sign. So he decided to put some old junky clothes on and grow a beard where they wouldn't notice him. And he sat on the bench outside. And uh, me, Johnny Reed, you know, I'm dancing down the street, acting like I can sing too. And uh, I look at him, and I I recognized a little bit of his features, but I didn't know for sure. So I said, Billy, the old man outside, the old, he said, yeah, I noticed him. He's just an old street bum. And I said, well, you know, he sort of favors Joey. He said, no, no, no way. So as soon as we walked out, Bruce said, Joey. As soon as he did, he looked around, and we all recognized that it was Joey. So Joey, he told us about the divorce and everything, and we sort of got mad at Michelle because of it. So he left, and we didn't really know where he was going. So a few nights later, when the next weekend, it was just one of those tremendously cold nights, and we were at the club, and Bruce gave me a song to record, and him and Billy helped me record it. So they seen me come in, and they said, hey, our boss is here, and he just recorded the song. We want him to get up and sing it. And so the song was called, Like the Book, Here I Am. It it goes with the book perfect. But while we didn't know that Joey was outside sitting on a bench, and so when he went out, Joey was crying, and he said, Joey looked at him and said, why are you crying? He said, why is Johnny singing my story? 
So, you know, that's the way it worked. So did he eventually get back with his wife? Yes, what happened? So we went looking for him, and finally we found him. He was in a coma because he was almost froze to death. She had went to church and prayed for them to let uh, Billy come back into her life. She said, the devil has no power over me if I believe in what we prayed for. So she was home, sleep that night, and she had a dream, and she said the church was playing for this man, and she put her hands in, and this man was cold, and he raised up, and it was Billy. She ran down the stairs. All right, she was already pregnant by Billy, and she stumped and fell down the stairs, and her mama come, and so they had to rush her to Vanderbilt, so here they're both in Vanderbilt. And so Michelle, well, Johnny saw Michelle being pushed in a wheelchair, and she hollered for him. And so Johnny went back and told the other guys, and she told Billy, I mean, Johnny, that she was pregnant with Joey's two sons. So he went back and told Bruce and Billy, who was waiting at the other weight room. And so Michelle's dad was outside of the room. And so he said, well, you're Johnny, and he said, I said, yes, and she said, he said, well, you must be Billy and Bruce, I said, yes, said, y'all here to see Michelle, said, well, Billy's in the the thing downstairs, and he don't know nothing, he was froze to death, so he said, well, let me go see Joey, so he runs down to see Joey, and he said, he's going to be my son-in-law, because he, him and Michelle's got two babies, Honey, they have a beautiful wedding at my little place down here in Fly, Tennessee, at the Fly Garden. They have a beautiful wedding. And guess who he got to present his present? He bought the house back from them that they lived in that they lost. He bought the house back in the book because he thought Michelle would want to live in the house even if she married a different man. And this is a true story. And Listen, the whole story is true. If I read it, I can't believe I wrote it. I just, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Ma'am, can I put the, your interview on my Facebook page too? Yeah, absolutely. Great. That's what I, well, that's what I'll, I'll put yours on there. What a wonderful story. Are you going to keep writing? I don't know. You know, uh, see, when I read my own book, I cry. Well, you know what? You should definitely write about that accident you had, because that's pretty amazing, too. Well, it's in the front of the book. What I did, I wrote a summary of how and why I wrote the book. That's amazing. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. You've got a wonderful story. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate this opportunity. You got it, Johnny. A back injury sidelined Brent Snyder as an army cook, but it opened up the world of writing, and now he's got three books in the works. His first, The Wyvern's Apprentice. Well, I decided that I kind of wanted to write a book that nobody had writ- read yet, so I sat down and wrote this. Um, no, no particular inspiration? No, I just kind of wanted to write a book. I'm sorry I don't have one of those inspiration stories, but that's pretty much how it happened. I... I just kind of started writing it, and it wrote itself. What's the story? Well, it's about uh, a female healer who um, 
well, she becomes a healer by mistake, kind of. She was in her village and they held a contest and she was chosen to become a healer. And so she goes to study with a wyvern who um, becomes her mentor and they kind of go on a bunch of adventures while she's learning how to heal. And then they come up against the sorcerer who just does not like her. She rubs him the wrong way. And so it's give and take with them for the rest of the story. And then the story picks up in the third book. Is a wyvern a real thing? It's a dragon. Oh, it, it, does everybody know that but me? I, I, hope, I hope some people know it. A dragon has four legs. A wyvern has two. This one has two legs and wings. It sounds like something out of Game of Thrones. Maybe a little. I've never watched it. So I, I, try, not to, I try not to read things and uh, watch things when I'm uh, writing so I don't get influenced by other things. I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that somebody says, oh, you're, you're copying my story. So what's your main character looking for? Well, she's, she just really wants to be a healer. And then the sorcerer shows up and she's out to get him before he gets her. Is there any reason why she wants to be a healer? Like why her life has taken her down this path? Well, she comes from a boring little village and she just wants adventure. Well, she must feel that she has an aptitude for healing. Actually, it wasn't her that, that decided that. It was the wyvern himself that, that decided she was going to be the next healer. She, um, she showed a, a bit of an aptitude for it. And he said, okay, this is who we're going to choose to be our next healer. And so, okay. and so he takes her under his wing and it goes from there. Why doesn't this sorcerer like her? Well, she kind of crosses him the wrong way in the story. And he wants her to join him because he'd really like a healer on his team. And he's nothing but bad. And she doesn't want to be part of that. So I guess there's several conflicts that go on right. in this book. Right. Is it mainly between these two meeting yes. up or crossing each other's paths? Yes, why can't they get out of each other's way? Because he's he's after her. He really wants her on his team. And so he's kind of hunting her down in this book. She's constantly on the run. Right. He, he doesn't really know where she is in this book, but he's looking for her. And, um, and she's, she's just wanting to be a, the best healer she can be. And so she studies as hard as she can to be this healer. And what she'll do then is she'll come back to the village and be the village's healer because the, the village healer before her decided it was time for him to move on. So at the end of the first book, does something happen to her that we have to read the second book to find out? Um, she is ready to go on the search for the sorcerer. She is done running, and it's time for her to go after him. Okay. Are you able to draw attention to your writing from where you live? Oh, I've had a couple interviews 
And my book's out on Amazon, and, and I'm in the process of doing interviews and stuff like that. Okay. I've gotten a couple calls saying, we want to interview for your book. Well, that's great, Brent. And so I, I didn't do anything yet. I'm in the process of writing and publishing. And so I haven't really gotten out and done much yet. Okay. But that's a plan. All right. Well, fair enough, Brent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for calling me. You got it. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Suzanne Galb kept several journals from her childhood, but never thought one day they would become the basis for her first published book. It's entitled Life in the Country, The Awesome Days of Farm Life and Some Family History. Now, how many journals did you find hidden away? I found three or four different journals. I wrote that in the back of my book. That's how I wrote this book. It's a, you know, it's a little book, but I, I really wrote it for my father's side second cousins because it was family history that I wanted them to know about. I looked at one journal and I, I leafed through it and then I looked at another and I leafed through it and I went, oh my gosh, this is the same story. I just wrote it different times. So a friend of mine did write a book and she said, you should write a book. And I went, are you crazy? I can't write a book. And then I just started, you know, around the pandemic time, just fooling around with putting it together. And that's how it happened. Well, tell me the story. Well, I started out when I was, you know, born and, and went up to just my childhood on the farm. I focused on the, the one farm in Browntown, New Jersey. It's Old Bridge Township of my different experiences. Um, being with my dad was always a highlight. My brothers, uh, I wrote about the wintertime with my brothers. That was they were older and they would dig tunnels and make ice forts and all, you know we we always had a good time. They had to do their chores first, but you know snow blizzards were then. We had a lot of snow blizzards when I was young. I wrote about my brother's car accident, and um, that is got to be hard to believe for a lot of people today. But in 1949, there were no MRIs, there were no counseling, there were no grief counseling. I was six years old, and it was when my aunts and grandparents came over, they'd walk in crying, and my mother would either have me go to my room or do something different. And I wrote about that, how I tiptoed back and listened, which I shouldn't have done because it was adult conversation that a, a six-year-old shouldn't have heard. Well, what what happened it, to your brother? He, they were in a car accident um, coming home from roller skating, and it was like 9 o'clock, but a, a guy wanted to commit suicide, and he left the bar and um, got in the car and hit my brother's car head on full speed. And my brother Rot Howard was in the front and Joey was driving. They were both killed and my brother Robert was injured very badly and he was thrown through the windshield, I'm sure. I didn't know that for sure, but I wrote about it. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean... 1949 was a long time ago. I'm now 80, and December 4th was always a struggle for me, especially after I had my own children and had my Christmas tree, and I would I would just focus back 
to my childhood when Howard was there. It was always fun. So it was it was a hard one. It was a lot of issues with family that I wrote about. And I wrote about the importance of forgiveness. Did you have a difficult time forgiving? Yeah, I, I did. In my adult years, I was always angry at my mother. And uh, she was very stern, strict, and, and beat us. And I wrote about that. And I said, I realized as an adult that she had a pretty rough life. And taking physically out on us was wrong. But it didn't happen that often. I didn't, I cannot say I lived in an abusive household. It, you know, my parents were very loving and um, didn't say it. But I knew I felt it. So the moral of the story is you get through life and you look back. If you can forgive who have um, hurt you, offended you, whatever, it's important to let go. Forgive because then you're released of that burden. It's easier said than done, though, right? Oh, yeah, I know. I, I, I lived it. I walked it. So, yeah. Did this impact your entire life? Well, uh, yeah, because I suppressed it. And when I was 45, I wrote about that in counseling for a totally different reason. Um, someone mentioned a car accident and Christmas. And I just started sobbing and crying. And I didn't know why. And then my counselor, God bless her, um, you know, addressed it right away, and I calmed down, and she said, this is from your brother's accident. You suppressed that all those years, uh, the actual grieving, and I wrote that. I, I finally grieved my brother's accident, uh, death, when I was 45 years old. So That's amazing. You know, you hold on to stuff back then. You didn't have counseling. You had no... I was an adult. When I finally went to counseling and was feeling good about what I was dealing with at that point in time, right? I had no clue this other underlining issue was going on in, you know, in my the back of my mind. So writing this book was cathartic for you. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know what? What is the lesson? I used to have nightmares that. I would wake up and it would be the children. It would be my brother's children and then my children. And then I'd wake up and and it was confusion, confusion all over the place. And I'd wake up and I, I'd be exhausted. I wouldn't be rested. And since I wrote the book, I don't have those dreams anymore. That's great. So many people tell me that, though. That, you know, writing mm -hmm. can be so therapeutic. It was. It, it was. Yeah. And and when I worked in the school district, I worked in special ed. I was surrounded by psychologists, social workers. I, you know, I, I was in charge of keeping um, the statistics for the special ed children. So I was working with the child study teams all the time for 27 years. And I, it was just amazing that. I, it took me a few weeks to realize I wasn't having those, not nightmares, but crazy dreams of confusion and family and sisters. and, and Well, good for you. You got to keep writing. 
<laughs> I don't know if I wrote about my adult life and my two marriages, it would be a bestseller. But <laughs> there you go. Get on it. Get on oh it, Suzanne. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm glad you wrote this one. Thank you. I had a 95 year old woman at church. No, she's 97 yesterday that she got the book and she read it and she just was amazed of what I had gone through and I didn't write it like that. I, you know, but my life was a, a roller coaster at times, I guess. Yeah. I had three different grandparents, three different families and, you know, it was different, three different religions and it was like, oh, whose house am I at now? Oh, you believe in this. Oh, you believe in this. What were the three different religions? Well, it was Catholic, Methodist, and Presbyterian. Oh, but, geez. You know, totally different. My mother was a convert. And you need to read that part of my book. It's crazy. When I, <laughs> when I said it was like a religious conflict in my house, because my mother was then excommunicated because dad was divorced. Oh, geez. And my father, could, oh, he was angry about that. With you know, So... It, it was. It's funny to me now, but it wasn't fun when he was when they were upset with each other, right? Over it, you know, which didn't happen often. But these are the things that kids remember. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So now, what? The woman in your church read it. Do they have a book club in your church? You should go. You should go talk to the book club. <laughs> my daughter in New Jersey. My daughter here both put the book and the interview I had three weeks ago since then it's out on facebook and i'm getting calls from cousins another cousin was the age of my brother and he leafed through the book he got to the part about the boy's accident and he's he's a 90 year old man and he's crying because oh. he was so close to my brother and he's that accident was so horrific and and i'm going i didn't write it for that i just Anyhow, but I'm, it's touching so many different people in so many different ways that I impressed myself. It's <laughs> like I, re I really wrote a book that is affecting people today. Yeah. But key is you were able to post the interview on Facebook and you've got yeah. your family promoting it on Facebook. That's what's really working for you. It is. That's yeah, really good to know. Well, let me tell you, you don't sound 80 to me. <laughs> they tell me I don't look 80, but um, I, I feel 80. <laughs> the way it goes. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. And thank you for calling. Thank you. Robert Grimms is a carnival kind of guy. He spent his whole life involved in carnivals and fairgrounds. And while he's traveled extensively, he managed to stay in the moment. He tells us how in his book, Mindfulness for the Here and Now. So I'm in New York and you say you used to work right down the street. My last job was right up the road at the Dutchess County Fair in Rhinebeck, New York. It's beautiful. Marvelous fair and a beautiful area. And uh, since I left there 11 years ago, I'm just retired and back in the family home in upstate New York, freezing to death, right across the road from the county fairgrounds. And one week every summer, I, they brought me a brought me my own Disney World. So I loved the carnival. I started, I can remember one night, it got, I got to know the carnival family that still plays the fair 60 years later. 
and got to know the owner of the carnival. And I can remember one night at 12 years of age, helping the man to tear down a kitty, take down a kitty ride. And my parents finally missed me and came over at two o'clock in the morning. Come on, you got to go home. So just always loved the carnival business. And there was an automobile thrill show, stunt show that played the fair for a number of years. Uh, Joey Chitwood was the name of the show. And they did shows at fairgrounds and racetracks all over the country. And I was teaching school in Utica um, uh, at the time. And Joey came in one year and he said, Tim's going to get out of college. My brother next year, we're going to put a second unit on the road. Would you ever be interested in going out as our announcer? <laughs> so for four, for 14 years, I spent as the voice of the Joey Chitwood Automobile Stunt Show touring all over the United States. And after that, then I got into the carnival business for a number of years. And then after that, I was I worked for the largest uh, uh, trade organization representing carnivals and circuses and fairs across the country. And then the job opened up in Rhinebeck, New York, and that was absolutely the pinnacle of my professional career. Six years I spent down there, and it was just absolutely fabulous. It's a great, great area. Now, did you use mindfulness throughout your career? Well, as, as, as I say in, 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 in the book, um, I lived in Florida for over 30 years. So I was in therapy down there, and the best advice that the therapist ever gave me was stay in the here and now. So I think way back then, you know, this would go back, you know, 40 years, I would say way back then, this idea of staying in the here and now, you know, became became obvious to me. It was just it was present. It was better to stay in the present moment. And um, I've done I've done some studying. I, I think it's become more popular of more, of, 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 you know, more recent time here. Um, and I've done some reading and some of uh, some of my meditation books are on medi- on, on mindfulness. So um, I've always loved to collect quotes. The first one that ever spoke to me was the George Bernard Shaw. Uh, some men see, see things as they are and ask why. I dream things that never were and say why not. That just stuck with me. And, and so I started collecting and writing down quotes. I've got three inches of index card notes, both sides of, of quotes that have, that have always spoken to me. Well, during my morning prayers and meditation and trying to communicate and get centered and focused and stay in the here and now, I started getting what I called my inspirations. These thoughts would come into my head and I just started jotting them down. Well, it, it, it reached a point where I wrote them all up, typed them all up and gave them to a friend of mine and his wife. And they said, Bob, you really ought to think about getting these published. So finally decided last year, maybe about this time, that let me find a publisher and, you know, pages, you probably well know, they do some advertising on television. And we checked out two or three uh, publishers and we felt like they did the best job relative to the marketing of the book. And I knew that I wasn't going to do a lot of that, you know, so it was it was a it was a work in progress really over uh, over the last 10 years i would say so it wasn't difficult to pull it all together because the work was already there well how do you lay out the book is it a book of sayings yeah each each page has a different one of my one of my inspirational uh, messages uh, one of them that pops in mind because i wrote it for my sisters People who do too much never want too much done for them because that, that they want to continue to do too much. Uh, I call them inspiration. I suppose any writer is inspired. You know, their writing is inspired. If, if you're a composer, you're in, you're inspired to compose. You know. So, but I, I really feel like this was a message that I was getting. I've written a lot, Alice. 
Uh, in all of my work uh, for, for, for 40 years in the business, I've written any number of press releases. And I write what people say are lovely letters. Oh, you have such a, such a way with words. So, you know, I guess I've been a writer, but this is certainly the first thing I've ever tried to get published. All right. And all the quotes in the book are yours, right? All with the exception of two. All right. How are you getting the word out? small community here. I'll get in the local paper and do something. Uh, I taught school in Utica right down the road. I may well try to do something there. We have a Barnes and Noble in uh, Utica. So um, I think they're carrying the book. So I may try to do something there, local radio station in town. But beyond that, what do you mean beyond that? That's pretty good. That's that's <laughs> that's more than most people are doing. Anyway, so I pick up your book and I look through it every day for a quote that may pertain to how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I, I think it's designed that basically it's not, you know, maybe you'd give a first read through, you know, just to see what it's all about. But to me, I would think it would be more, you know, you'd pick it up in the morning and you'd, they're, they're short, you know, a sentence, some of them may be two or three sentences, not, not, you know, not terribly long. Um, and so you'd use a quote a day, you know, just to kind of, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've been in recovery for 38 years, so I don't do anything any morning but to get to set it to, with my meditation books and my Bible, and that's the way I start my day. So, to me, I would just program one of those because that's what I do with my mindfulness books. You know, I'll pick up a quote each day, and a different one every day speaks to me differently. Right. So you're going to keep writing. Well, I, I think so. Be the next one would be mindfulness for the modern Christian. And here's a quote that I'm that will go in the next book: "Closer to God now in every way." There you go. The book is certainly uh, it's it's. I'm I'm happy that I was able to do it, but it was more certainly more significant that I became uh, clean and sober 38 years ago. That was monumental for me. And so it's not it's 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 something that's very nice, and I'm proud of, but. Uh, it's certainly not. I, I can't say it's a turning point in my life. But you're proud. I'm. I'm. I'm proud. It, I, I am. Uh, it, it, well, you should be. You know, I was. I was concerned when when I saw that. You know what they wanted to offer is the price, and yet somebody's listen. People would appreciate that. There's a lot of uh, creativity going into this and putting it all together. So, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And you know, I'm as I say, I'm a spiritual person. So if God wants a lot of people to to get in touch with it and have it do that use to their benefit, then that'll, that'll happen. All right. Listen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.